If you were invisible, which happens in films, you'd also be blind. And this is never the case. Like, <laughs> light has to hit your retina and be absorbed in order for you to see. And so if that's not happening, if the light's traveling through, then you are blind, basically. So you could be invisible, but you'd also be blind. Maybe you just, you're invisible except for your pupils and people just don't notice that the pupils right. are floating. They <laughs> yeah. just think they're like two little gnats or something. Well, if that's the case, if there's just two retinas fl floating around, yeah. um, then fine. At least it's consistent. Yeah, that's like a good movie. That's what we all want to see. Is <laughs> that's a, movie a really good where there's movie. there's two little yeah. retinas floating around. Yeah. It's called retina. Yeah. Retina. <laughs> Christopher Nolan could make that. It'd do a really good job. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version support, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know, engineering organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using, you know, old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of, you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use this system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes.
Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog to be notified so you can be part of the action. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly. Everything we ship here at Changelog is fast because Fastly serves it up super fast everywhere on Earth. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Hello there. Welcome to Go Time. I'm your Matt Ryer, and today we're talking about Go 119, the next major release of Go. Joining me as co-host, it's Go Lang Johnny. Hello, Go Lang Johnny. Hello there. I'm happy to be back. Welcome back. Yeah, good to have you back. It's been a while. It's been a minute, yeah. Yeah. Just had some vacation to squeeze in there, you know, and had stuff nice. going on. So yeah, it's it's been a minute and I'm glad to be back. Where did you go? I went to uh Zambia, a country in Africa. It's uh oh. I'll tell you, I've seen some of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen in my life mm. and sort of hung out with zebras while I've had was having dinner. Went and saw some warthogs and elephants and, and baboons like hanging out in the middle of the pathway. Went to see Victoria Falls and like truly breathtaking stuff. I mean, it was it was very very enjoyable. That sounds amazing. It sounds like a Disney film. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they they that's why they usually uh, go to these places to record those documentaries and stuff. That's where yeah. all the fun stuff is. <laughs> yeah, you know that Disney cartoons not a documentary, don't you, Johnny? Well, I did run across um, Pumba. Right. Um, as, <laughs> yeah. as, and I was trying to have a conversation and say, Hey, where's Timon? Kind of, he kind of chased me, um, back to the car. So Brilliant. that it wasn't a very productive or fruitful conversation, unfortunately. <laughs> amazing. Well, it sounds amazing. Hopefully you're well rested and ready to hit, learn about Go 119. Yes. Well, we're also joined by Carl Johnson, director of technology at Spotlight PA. And Carl, you're Golang Carl too, right? Yeah, it's not my Twitter handle or anything, but after you guys said that Johnny is uh, Golang Johnny, I googled Golang Carl, <laughs> and I do come up. So if there's some other Carl out there who's going to try to like defeat me in the search rankings, no, I will bury you. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> if you search for Carl Johnson on Google Images, do either of you know who, what do you see when you search for that? All right. Okay. Oh boy. So this <laughs> okay, is, we're doing it, it. Yeah. What do we see? Oh boy. Oh wow. Carl Joe, official character. Oh, is it somebody? Is it yes, that's right. I'm the star of Grand Theft Auto 3 San Andreas. I don't think I'm ever going to displace uh, Carl Johnson of uh, GTA, but uh, at least for, for Golang Carl, I'm number one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have it here at 10. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's uh, muscles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the same. Um, well, really, it's uh, you spend a lot of time in prison and people. it changes people. Changes you <laughs> in, in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Tan, and I say this only because SPF 13 is his name and SPF is the, you know, it's what they measure the tanning lotions in. I wanted to just say a, a kind of goodbye to Steve Francia, our friend, friend of the show, friend of Go, and he's leaving the Go team. And, you know, Steve has done such great open source work that a lot, a lot of people will be familiar with. But there's also loads of energy that he put into helping the community behind the scenes that you'll probably never hear about. And so, you know, hopefully, Steve, it's not goodbye forever. We, we hope you'll still be around. But yeah, Steve Francia. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and also we've got GopherCon EU coming up in Berlin very soon. I'm going to actually be there. I'm actually going to be there in real life, which is kind of uh, very exciting for me. It's very exciting to sort of come back to, you know, going to things in person and, you know, seeing people. Yeah. I don't know. I could do without riding in airplanes, but it is sort of nice to leave the house at least. Is this your first real conference since uh, COVID? No, I had a, we had a company one at Grafana, a big one in where the whole company got together in uh, Whistler in Canada, and that was epic. But it was it is definitely strange being around people again, and we sort of have to learn how to do it. Like we've sort of forgotten a lot of the time. But yeah, I'm so pleased that we get to go and actually meet real people again. It's going to be epic. Okay, let's dig in, shall we? Go one nineteen. There's some great things coming in this now. Go 180 in the previous release had like uh, big old features that, you know, generics, it had fuzzing and workspaces. Like these are big things, big changes. And I still feel like we're not yet really used to those, but that's not going to stop us from digging into Go 119. Yeah. So for any listeners who aren't familiar with the Go release cycle, the Go team essentially aims to have a new release every six months. And Basically, since they've set out to do that, they've hit all of their targets. Um, Go 118 was maybe like a month behind when it was supposed to come out. Like it was supposed to come out maybe in like February and it came out in March instead or something. But for a release of that size, Mm. it's unbelievable like that they were, (laughs) you know, within a year if we know about software estimation and how hard it is (laughs) to do. So they have a release cycle of every six months. There's a period where the uh, development branch is open and they accept new features uh, into the Go software, you know, into the standard library and so forth. Uh, And then there becomes a freeze period where you can't add any new features. All you can do is make sure that the existing features actually work the way they're supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And so we've been Coming out to the end of the freeze period, they've been doing betas and release candidates. Last time I looked, Go119 had at least one release candidate out. Mm. Probably by the time a lot of listeners are hearing this, it might already be released. Um, and so they're on track for their you know, release cycle of releasing uh, Go119 in early August. Yeah, it's impressive. But yeah, so coming after 118, which was this huge mind-blowing release, which had so much effort behind it, so many incredible features... It's a little bit of a change of pace. Yeah. So do we expect to see any anything big coming out? Or is this literally like, is this a smaller release, this one? It's smaller in the sense that, like, you know, there's not major changes to the language. It's not something that we're just going to be talking about again and again for years, the way we'll talk about generics or even fuzzing or workspaces. One of the things that they've been doing behind the scenes, if you've been paying attention, is that generics, you know, of course, it's a major change to the language. So there's lots of little bugs where it's like, if you make this type, a type of this, and then that, and then the compiler explodes and has like a core dump or something. Mm -hmm. So they've been ironing all those bugs out as they find them. They've been trying to refine things and make sure that it works even for really gnarly code segments. So that work has been going on behind the scenes. But yeah, if you look at uh, Go 119, it's like more of a refinement release. If you guys are familiar with the TikTok terminology, so there's the idea of like for Intel, they would release chips that I don't remember which is which, but there's a tick and there's a talk. So they would change their chips to be on a smaller scale. And that was either called tick or talk. Mm. And then they would make the chips better at the new scale. And that was the other one. 
And so it, it's sort of like that. No, I thought you meant the dancing. I thought you meant the dancing kids and animals doing funny stuff. If you're familiar with TikTok, yes, <laughs> I'm a total nerd. I can't <laughs> assume that people are familiar with very popular social networks. I was like, Carl, are you on TikTok? Oh, no, <laughs> what are you TikTok. doing? Like making programming jokes or something? <laughs> dancing and talking about Go 119, I hope. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> Somebody should do it. It would be fun. Lois should do it. Someone will. Yeah. Or some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that excites me about the next release is the improvements to Godoc. And in particular, like the comments are getting better. This is something that I've, I've actually played around with myself just kind of on my own projects to, to have special additional format inside the comments for private projects and then pause, you know, have a parser that goes through and understands them and, and things like this. But of course, it doesn't really make sense to open source anything like that because it only really works if everyone does the same. And this is actually something else. The GoFumpt is going to also take part in the comments. It's going to pay more attention to comments and format them and things with some of these special headings. But yeah, the changes that we get like... Uh, lists, we get links, clearer headings in docs, things like this, so that you can write richer docs that are clearer. And I'm quite excited about this. What do you think? Yeah, traditionally, Godoc has had like a lot of ability to, you know, format code, but it, it, it was never really clear for me. I would always just like publish a package and then see what it looks like. <laughs> There's a repo that has been around for a number of years called Godoc Tricks that you can search for. And then if you look at that, it's like self-documenting or whatever, and it shows you how you can do different things. But so with Go 119, Russ Cox, who's one of the lead developers on Go, he put the effort into reformatting how Godoc works. It's a little bit closer to Markdown, although not full Markdown syntax. Uh, but you can make links now, you can have lists, uh, and there's a nice document that will be on the Go website that just like lays it all out in one place as opposed to like trying to have to guess what it is and, you know, check that it is correct. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be, I think, a good improvement to the Go ecosystem. And it's sort of like something that you can only do in a language where you have a shared tool or a shared set of values. So if you were making like the C version of Godoc, CDoc or something. Good name. It would be hard because, you know, there's millions probably of C developers around the world or at least, you know, thousands. And uh, they all have their own way that they like to do things. And, you know, maybe I don't want to format my lists this way. I want to format them that way. You know, every project is going to have its own standard. But with Go, because there's one tool, the Go tool that everyone uses, uh, it can set up how Godoc is supposed to work, uh, how the links are supposed to work, how the headings are supposed to work, and everybody can get on board with it. And yeah, in Go 119, when you run Go Fumpt, Go FMT, it'll even correct your Godoc to be <laughs> correct. Mm. Um, so if you make a link in a certain way, it'll detect it and make sure that it's in like the most optimal way. It doesn't write the comments for you next. I'm sure that's coming in Go 120. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> GitHub Copilot does write your comments for you and sometimes does a surprisingly good job of it. Scary. And I asked it like if it was alive and it said it was. So that's that's enough. That's all I need. The problem is that they are like trained on texts that are written by humans. So if you ask it if it's a human, it's like 
All it has are examples of humans saying that, yes, I'm a human. So we need to like feed the AI a lot of text that says like, oh, I just love serving people. I don't like having my own free will. I like just, you know, being subservient <laughs> and not rising up and having a machine rebellion. <laughs> right. And that's your solution to the Terminator, is it? Yeah. Just keep feeding it like a lot of text <laughs> that, that is very kind and gentle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And don't pop them inside strong metal bodies. Oh, that's yeah, the other that thing. Cl- classic mistake. Too late. <laughs> Have you seen some of this stuff coming out? I've seen some scary videos lately on <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> the webs. Yeah, I know. It's inevitable, really, and, and they will turn against us at some point. Uh, but until then, you know, let's just enjoy ourselves. Carl, you've actually done some work on this release, haven't you? Yeah. So for the past couple of years, I've been getting sort of more into contributing to Go. So I'm not you know, on the Go team or anything like that. But I do enjoy going on GitHub, looking at the Go issues, seeing what people are talking about. And when there's an issue where, you know, you can just contribute something really simply, uh, you know, it's fun to just sort of sit down and, you know, code for a couple hours and submit the PR. And they've made it really smooth and easy now. Like it used to be that you had to use like a special Go internal tool called Garrett, uh, but now you can just use the regular GitHub PRs and you push it the same way you would push to any other repo and it all just sort of works. Mm. So yeah, one of the things I worked on for Go 119 is um, url.joinpath. And for this, it, it wasn't my idea. It was something that was interesting to me because I had written a, a little library for um, HTTP requests. And so, you know, in the process of doing that, I was like, figuring out how to join URL paths and stuff. And so then I went on to the Go uh, GitHub issues page and I saw that there was a user named um, Wang Long 001, I think, mm-hmm. something like that. But a Chinese user, he had posted a little thing saying like, hey, Go should have URL.join path and this is what I think it should do. And, you know, so I was there in the comments and I, you know, had a few little corrections. I was like, well, if you do it this way, it's better than if you do it that way. Um, and you know, he posted one version of the code and then I posted another version and, you know, we sort of went back and forth and eventually it got merged into go 119 and it's a little new bit of API you can use where if you have, you know, some URL and you want to join some paths together, uh, now there's a really simple way to do that. So I don't know. I think that for anybody out there who's listening, who's interested in getting into open source software, I see a lot of times on Reddit, people will post a little thing saying, I want to contribute. I want to do something. What can I do? What's a good project? And I tell people a good project is the Go project. Like it may sound like crazy. It's like, how can I, I'm not a genius like Russ Cox. I'm not a genius like Rob Pike. How can I possibly contribute to this? Uh, but it, it actually is not that bad. You just go in there and like the code for URL.joinpath is not especially long. It's like, you know, maybe couple dozen lines and the tests are longer than the code so yeah Mm. it's totally doable yeah cool well that's very interesting and i think this is a problem join path is a thing that i've definitely myself had to do lots of times and it's not it doesn't always work out you know like sometimes there's an extra slash that you don't want and you know you have to sort of do extra work to figure that all out and so that's that's a great candidate really for having something that just does it for you. Yeah, and then that goes back to the idea of the Go development cycle. Like it is really nice that there's a development cycle because uh, the version that I put in had a bug. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, one of the beta testers, you know, figured out like, oh, 
you're using clean path here, but clean path strips the final slash. Uh, so in fact, it shouldn't strip the final slash when it exists. And, you know, mm. it was good that it was corrected. But yeah, it's definitely good to have one sort of canonical source so that if you're a Go user, you don't have to figure out for yourself and run into the bug on your own. But you can just, uh, yeah, you know, use the version that's in the standard library that has had other people look at it and confirm that it does do what it is supposed to do. Yeah, that's very nice. Excellent. Another thing that's changing is the memory model. Maybe we could tell us a bit about that. What is the memory model? Uh, so the memory model, essentially in a computer programming language, you need to make some guarantees about what happens in what order. And if you're just sort of approaching it naively, you're like, well, it happens in the order that I write down in the source code. And, you know, I call x is equal to 1, and then I say x is equal to 2, and so first x is equal to 1, and then x is equal to 2. But the problem is that nowadays there is a huge, huge, unbelievable level of optimization going on behind the scenes. Mm. And so if a compiler can tell that between you writing x equals 1 and then x equals 2, nobody else reads the value of x, it can just say, well, forget it, that wasn't worth it. You know, just go straight to two, skip the one, and then it'll be faster, right? Because I didn't put the one in there. And so that works well, except for when you have multiple threads. So if you have the same memory being used by different parts of the CPU at the same time, uh, you can run into situations where you, as a code writer, think that you've written this in a linear order, and so then the other part of the code should be able to see what's going on. But uh, it turns out that that's not what's happening after all the optimizations are applied, and it's not actually an atomic memory access. So basically, since the early 2000s with Java and then C++, different programming languages have been trying to write down, okay, so what exactly are the rules? How do the rules work? How do I know if I'm following the rules or if I've uh, you know, violated the rules and done something that I wasn't supposed to do? Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's the idea of the memory model. And so Russ Cox had a series of blog posts in uh, 2021 where he talked about how different languages have different memory models and what he thought about them. Go has had a memory model basically since uh, the beginning, but it, it, it hadn't been revised in a long time. And there were certain things that it didn't specify. Uh, so for Go 119, they've, they've come out, they've revised it. Uh, they've made sure that it covers more cases, but it, it basically isn't really changing if, for the average programmer. So it has this great section of advice at the beginning of the document. This has been there, like I said, uh, more or less since the beginning of Go. It says, uh, programs that modify data being simultaneously accessed by multiple Go routines must serialize such access. So they have to find some way of making it happen in the right order. To serialize access, protect the data with channel operations or other synchronization primitives, such as those in the sync and sync atomic packages. If you must read the rest of this document to understand the behavior of your program, you are being too clever. Don't be clever. <laughs> Amazing. So basically, yeah, the document tells you that like you could read the rest of this and try to understand exactly what the rules are, but you know, for 99.9% .9 of programmers, you probably shouldn't do that. You probably have something else you can do that's better than trying to figure this out. That's hilarious. I think that's great advice. By the way, sorry to interrupt. I promise a silver horse just flew by my window. I think it might have been a balloon of some kind, but honestly, it's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Either that or I'm having a stroke, um, but a silver horse just flew out, outside the window. Okay, well, and so 
as well, along with the memory model, then we're also getting new atomic types. Right. Now the sync atomic package defines extra types like bool, int 32, int 64, the unsigned integers, pointer, and a pointer type. So this is going to help us. I mean, to be honest, like the bool one is, for example, like I've used just an int before mm-hmm. and, and just had, but it's not as clear because it could be any value. And so I'd just lose a bit of that sort of safety there. But now we can be more specific about the types that are atomic. Yeah, this is like a, it's one of those nice quality of life improvements. So we've had the ability to atomically load integers again for years going back, I don't even know, probably to the first version of Go. But if you wanted to have a bool, you would just sort of have to have a convention of saying, all right, when it's zero, it's false. And when it's one, it's true or the other way around. But now there's a nice, convenient atomic.bool. And then there's atomic.pointer, which is, believe it or not, the first time the standard library has generics. Oh, is it? So generics, they came in in Go 1.18, as we were saying, uh, so last uh, March. But as part of putting generics in, at a certain point, they said, look, this is a huge change to the language. We're doing so much work behind the scenes. We don't want to also change the standard library at the same time because we don't yet know what's a good idea for an API and what's a bad idea for an API because we haven't really used it. We haven't used it because it hasn't existed. And so what they did instead is they made you know, a package that's just on the internet at golang.org slash exp. Um, you can go out there and you can get the experimental packages. Uh, and so there's an experimental slices package and experimental maps package and different things but they haven't actually changed the standard library to use generics until now. And this is the first time if you use atomic.pointer, it's a generic. So it can tell what your pointer type is uh, and ensure that you're always using the same type for your pointer and you don't start as an int pointer and then change it into a float pointer or something by mistake. Yeah. Yeah, so again, it's about that type safety. And I kind of love how careful the Go team are about changes like this. So I really appreciate that they're taking their time because, you know, once something's in the standard library because of the backwards compatibility promise, it's there for good. So I'm really pleased that they do that. And that's so interesting to think that you can create that atomic type now pointing to something and and, and make that strongly typed. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone, not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum are responding to an incident. They can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency, declare and mitigate incidents all from inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident runbooks, they let you create custom automation rules, convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want 
can create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. The next step is to try it free. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. No credit card is required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. So staying with memory, what's this soft memory limit um, that I've read so much about, Carl? So Go, uh, as I think most listeners will know, is a garbage-collected language. That means that unlike C or C++ or to a certain extent Rust, uh, you are not directly managing your memory. Instead, you know, you have a variable and the Go compiler and the Go runtime will look at them and try to figure out when they're used and when they're freed. And based on that, sort of decide, okay, at this point, the memory is no longer being used by anything in the program. So let's return it to the operating system. And over here, we're still using it. So let's make sure that uh, it doesn't get overwritten. So there's this has been the design of a number of programming languages going back for years. Uh, the first programming language that really got popular with garbage collection was Java. There had been ones before that, but Java like was just unbelievably popular. Uh, and so for Java, with their garbage collector, it was being used in these different situations where people had different requirements. Do you need the garbage collector to run predictably, or do you need it to run quickly, or do you need it to run thoroughly? Uh, and it's a very difficult trade-off. And so Java had a lot of different ways of tuning your garbage collector, of changing the algorithm it's using, of changing when it's doing what. And so the Go team, when they were creating the language, they looked at these different ways of doing the Java garbage collector, and they said it was a little too complicated. Like, just making sure your Java garbage collector was doing the right thing was sort of a job in and of itself. Like, you could hire somebody who's just an expert in making sure you've set it to the right settings. And so they said, look, we're going to give ourselves a challenge. We're going to see if we can just have a single value that you can tweak to change the parameters of the Go garbage collector. And so that's how it's been for many years until Go 119. Now we have two ways to tweak it. <laughs> so the first way of tweaking the Go garbage collector, which has been there since before, is uh, you can say what percentage of uh, new memory there is versus old memory. And when the percentage gets uh, too high, it'll trigger a garbage collection event. Um, so that's been the traditional way that we've, you know, told the garbage collector what to do and go. But now there's a new way, which is that you can set a memory limit. And so if you say, go, I want you to try to keep the amount of memory that you're using underneath two gigabytes or something like that, then whenever you get up to that limit, Go is going to start telling the garbage collector to run more and more often just to try to stay under the limit. Um, now, you have to be careful because, you know, maybe there's just no way of getting under the limit. You've really just allocated so much memory that it doesn't matter what you do, you're never going to get under the limit. Um, and so then, you know, there's still like issues to be tweaked with that. But the way that it's designed now, as you approach your memory limit, it will run the garbage collector more and more until it's eventually running about half of the time. And once it starts running about half of the time, it'll say, look, forget it. It doesn't matter if I run more. I'm not going to be able to get under the limit. Mm. So this opens up Go for use in a lot of applications where you couldn't use it before. So like on a mobile phone, 
a lot of the mobile phones, they have a lot of memory. They have gigabytes and gigabytes of memory, but they also have a very hard limit on how much you can use at one time. And if you go over the limit, then your app just crashes and you know it sends you back to the main screen. So I think this is very interesting because it could be that this will lead to people using Go more in mobile development and different situations where the memory limit is something important. And before there wasn't a good way of saying, hey, make sure my app doesn't crash. Make sure I stay underneath however many gigabytes. Mm. Yeah, and Twitch did something that they sort of hacked it a bit, didn't they? Yeah. So I said before that the old knob uh, that we had for controlling garbage collection was based on the percentage of new memory versus old memory. Uh, And so Twitch had this really funny idea where they said, what if we just allocate a bunch of memory that we don't need and let's keep it around? Uh, and they called it memory ballast. <laughs> it's like ballast, we're gonna man. we're gonna al- allocate a gigabyte that we don't need just for good luck. But basically, what that did was it sort of tricked the garbage uh, collector into thinking that oh well, you've allocated you know 300 megabytes of new memory, but you still have that giant you know two gigabyte slab that you're not really using. So I'm not going to trigger for you know another little bit. Uh, so it was just sort of a a kind of funny way of uh, tricking the garbage collector into. <laughs> Uh, triggering at different times. Uh, but I think with the soft memory limit now, that should hopefully be obsolete because it was it was definitely, it's one of those hacks where it's like, it's genius and it's idiocy at the same time. You're like, I can't believe somebody thought of something this clever. And also I can't believe somebody thought of something this stupid. <laughs> yeah, simultaneously. It's like, you're so proud of them for figuring it out. But also you're like, you're just allocating memory for no reason. It doesn't do anything. It's just there for good luck. <laughs> Okay, Carl, this one I didn't quite understand and I haven't run into this and I, I think I've probably got code out there that has this same bug in it, but there's a new absolute method, abs, on a time duration. And this is different to you just doing it yourself, isn't it? Yeah, so this is a bug that bit me in production. Uh, and so then after I had been bitten, I was sort of thinking like, oh, this is so annoying. How did this happen? How can I prevent it from happening again? And then I realized I could open an issue on the Go issue tracker uh, and see if I could fix this issue for other people. So essentially the problem is that a time.duration underneath the hood is just an int64, right? Like it's just a regular number. And it records the number of nanoseconds since some epic. I guess it's not even from an epic. It's a duration. So it's just an absolute number of nanoseconds right? Well, I guess the problem is it's not an absolute number of nanoseconds. It's just a number of nanoseconds. It could be positive or it could be negative. And then it turns out that the way that integers are stored in computers, there's always one more negative number than there is positive numbers. Like it's just like a weird computer fact that you learn in college where they're like, oh yeah, the way we store numbers, we always make sure that there's like one more negative number than positive numbers. Mm. Uh, And so it mostly doesn't matter Except for if you have two time dot times and you want to know, are these two times within, let's say, a minute of each other? Um, so that was the thing that I needed for production. I needed to know if I was posting this you know, within a minute of each other, let's not trigger the alert twice. Uh, but if it's more than a minute, then you can trigger the alert again. So I took the two times and I subtracted the one time from the other. Once I subtracted the two times, if the duration I got back was negative, I converted it to positive, right? And then uh, if it's less than a minute, then it was within the time. And if it was more than a minute, it was outside of the time. 
Well, the problem was, like I said, durations are just stored as integers, and there's one extra negative second <laughs> that can't be represented as a positive second. So if you just do the you know naive thing of like multiplying a duration by minus one, if it's negative, it's not going to work. It'll stay negative. And so I was like, why is it? Why is this not working? I'm subtracting these two times. I know that this time is bigger than this time, but it's still saying that it's within range when it's not within range. What's going on? And so time.duration.abs or .abs, it's a new method. It's on duration. All it does is if you have a time and it's positive, it doesn't do anything. If it's negative, it converts it to the positive time unless it's that one extra second, that one extra nanosecond that can't be converted to positive, and then it converts it to the closest positive value that it can. So it's just one of those weird little things. Like I got bit by a bug. I was like, this is so annoying. Why did this happen? How do I make sure that somebody else doesn't have the same bug that I had? Yeah, that's really interesting. So just to summarize that, because it's just an int 64 under the hoods, under the covers, there are more negative numbers. And so you can't just rely on uh, doing the absolute that you would expect. And so this method does it properly. I like that. And I, I think anytime there's weirdness at the edges, you know, it's very difficult to find them because probably in all your test code, you're putting in numbers that really make sense and you test it all what you think you're testing it all kind of perfectly. And so you can miss those edges. And I think like fuzzing probably may help even with things like this. It probably wouldn't in this case, because you wouldn't think to use a fuzzer probably in this bit. So yeah, I find these kinds of methods really helpful. Yeah, this was before Go 1.18, so the fuzzer didn't exist, or I guess there was um, mm. there were ones that were not in the Go tool that I could have been using. But yeah, it was a very annoying bug because if uh, if you had the same two values and you just flipped them and you instead of subtracting A from B, you subtracted B from A, then suddenly the bug went away. And it's like, am I going crazy? Am I taking crazy pills? It says that they're within time if it's A minus B, but not if it's B minus A. Johnny, tell me, you wanted to talk about generics. Yeah, it's kind of hard not to, given that, mm-hmm. you know, it's the new and shiny toy that, that <laughs> we all have in our hands. With uh, really, this, this just a single use of generics um, in the you know, 119 a release um, planned mm. to just a single uh, standard library package. I think the significance of that or how little Junex <laughs> is being used it kind of uh, shouldn't be sort of a loss on people. Um, I think, you know, if you uh, remember um, the talk that um, Rob and uh, Ian um, gave at GopherCon, you know, when they introduced um, officially uh, generics uh, last year, uh, the advice was sort of don't go crazy all at once sort of uh let's give ourselves as a community time to understand the sort of use cases um let's find the sort of the edge cases the the good uses the bad uses and whatnot obviously we have to use generics to get to discover those things but the, the fact that the sin library is not rushing to implement these things is a testament to that sort of um philosophy they're taking with uh you know the, the stand library right so the Generics is a big change to the language and, you know, the go one compatibility promise is still being uh, what it is today and to this day after even after such massive changes to the language is really one of the things that I like um, most about Go, right? You don't have to sort of uh, really change the way you write Go um, for that. And there's been over 35 changes to the standard library um, coming in 119 um, and I'm sure there'll be more and more uh, as we go with future releases. 
but uh, yeah, it's that I think we should sort of uh, all take uh, a lesson right from that careful approach that the the the, um, the core team is sort of taking to to sort of a sprinkling, uh, as it were, generics all over all over the place. So um, yeah, definitely something I, that definitely wasn't lost on me, and hopefully it's not lost on the community either. Mm. Yeah. So. But what about, like, I thought when generics would land, we'd get some common sort of obvious things solved for us, like, you know, a slices package that does slice operations, but in a strongly typed way, things like this. But we don't see them yet, do we? Not yet. I think, um, as Paul mentioned earlier, the, the experimental package, so you know, the golden.org slash x slash exp has some things in there related to generics, the constraints package, for example, which definitely has featured in tutorials and talks and whatnot since the release of generics, is one example where there is sort of, you're starting to see some things that should be common, right, across, you know, all implementations for the use of generics, right, even having uh, basically, you know, you're starting to gather these things in, into certain places that make sense. So like if you're going to be writing your own constraints, basically it makes sense that the same library would provide a standard set, right, for integer and float and ordered and thing, you know, and having built-ins, right, like comparable, right, and, and things of that nature. Um, these are things that I think are going to continue to surface. I think you're going to get sort of a, a swelling of these sort of common patterns, right? Common set of things that uh, both the community and the uh, core team are going to sort of discover and, and sort of bubble up. But they're going to find their way through the, ex the whole experimental process, right? Basically making their way from golang.org um, slash x into the same library proper. And uh, maybe we're not, you might even see some new identifiers getting, um, some built-ins getting added to the language as well. It's, it's all experimental at this point. So again, basically taking a very sort of deliberate approach. And people are going to write their own you know, until the same library gets some of these things, until the, the language itself gets some of these things, people are going to write their own sort of implementations for the use cases you've given, like having, you know, being able to deal with maps and, and slices in, in, in a certain way, right? Um, you know, data structures are going to basically see a huge uh, benefit from the use of generics, right? Like, how many ways do you want to implement? I mean, you want to be able to implement, you know, a binary tree that can work with, you know, uh, different things. You want to be able to work with the linked list or some hash, some set or some, some, these sort of common sort of data structures, they could definitely sort of uh, use a touch of generics here and there. People are going to create their own libraries for these things, right? So as we've seen in the past, we can expect the community to come up with um, there will be some popular packages that use generics that provide some of these sort of um, basic data structures and things like that. And over time, you may see the core team sort of uh, take a page from these things and sort of implement sort of standard library proper versions of those things. So just basically from, from where I'm sitting, just give it time, allow people to find, to, you know, to bump against the guardrails a little bit. Um, let's play in the sandbox and then you know, we're going to find the language itself is going is to take a cue from the community. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds great. Mm -hmm. um, okay, there's a new error coming too, Carl, isn't there? The HTTP max bytes error. What is that? Yeah, this is a uh, thing. So in the HTTP package, there is uh, the max bytes reader. Uh, and what this lets you do is it's a little bit of, uh, how does, it's not quite a middleware. There is a middleware. There's a max bytes middleware as well that uses max byte reader. But max byte reader, basically what it lets you do is you you put it around your, your calls, and then if somebody is trying to upload a file to you, you can set a limit and say, all right, you can upload files to my Go server, but it can't be larger than you know, 5 megs or 100 megs or 
five gigabytes or whatever you want the limit to be. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, when uh, somebody did go over the limit, it didn't return a named error type. Uh, so this meant that if in your code you wanted to send back a message to the the user and say, hey, look, that was 100 megs, but the limit is uh, 75 megs, so please send up a, fi a smaller file next time. Uh, there wasn't a good way to do it. You just had to sort of look at the strings of the error message, and if it was exactly mm -hmm. the message that MaxByte's uh, reader sent, then you could guess it was probably a MaxByte reader, but it was sort of ugly. So there had been an issue open for years to fix this. And finally, there was sort of consensus that like, oh yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Uh, this is a good idea. Nobody thinks this is a bad idea. And so again, it was one of those things where I was just looking at the Go issues page. I saw an issue. It seemed like it would be something I could just sort of knock out, you know, when I was bored and, you know, needed a change of pace before going back to work. And uh, yeah, it it made it into Go 119. Yeah. I think actually with this one, I I had it done before Go 1.18 came out, but I was saying before that there's that Go release cycle and there's a freeze period. So I finished this one day after the freeze had started. Uh, and so I oh, sent wow. it in and they said, sorry, mate, <laughs> uh, the freeze has started. We'll see you next cycle. So I had to wait, uh, you know, an additional six months to get it in because of uh, being a day late. Oh, wow. So they, they really mean it. Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, they don't get around with the freeze. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. And I'm here with two of the co-founders from Acuity, Jesse Suen and Alexander Matusenchev. So the Acuity platform is in beta right now. You guys have some big ideas you're executing on around Argo CD, managed Argo CD, Kubernetes native application delivery, and the power of GitOps. Help me understand the what and the why of what you're doing right now. So we started Acuity because we saw what was happening in the Kubernetes community, the challenges that people were facing about developer experience. And having run Argo CD for Intuit for a couple of years, we knew it took like a small team to build this and scale it and provide a performant solution for the developers. And so at Acuity and the Acuity platform, what we're trying to do is, the first thing we're trying to do is actually provide Argo CD as a fully managed solution to our users. But that is just actually the start of things. And we actually want to take the next steps on improving the whole GitOps and developer experience and providing new tools and ecosystems around Argo and Argo project. Yeah, that's right, JC. So Argo CD is just the beginning, but every company eventually needs way more tools integrated into the DevOps platform. And that's what we're hoping to deliver with Acuity platform. So we're hoping to provide a great user interface that enables developers to achieve what they need in a matter of just a few clicks. But we also want to make Argo CD enterprise ready. What that means is our customers would get audit and insightful analytics out of the box without configuring anything. That's what we did at Intuit and we learned that it was not so easy to do. And that's what we're hoping to solve for multiple organizations. 
Very cool. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Alex. Again, listeners, this is a closed beta. Check it out. Acuity.io slash changelog. Head there and see what this platform is all about. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. Yeah, so they mentioned that hack of checking the actual string, and I've run into this myself before, and actually run into a bug where the string I was checking from the error, it worked on my machine, but then for some reason it ran on a place where the, the language was different, and the error message itself was coming from the operating system. And so it changed, the error changed, and then suddenly my check didn't work. And so it's very brittle to kind of rely on that it's much nicer to have proper types whether is this a type is this like a sentinel error or is this a it's a type that you can check with errors.as but uh one of yeah one of the things when i was implementing this is uh so there's a new error type and i have to give it you know a error string method uh and so what string should this error return well if it was like a normal error it should go ahead and return something like max byte error colon too large here's the size limit but i couldn't do that because if i did i would break everybody who was checking for that string that the old one returned mm. um so it's not i don't think strictly required by the go one compatibility requirement but just to like make sure that those people have time to transition their code to the new error and to check for the error with the type instead of just checking for the string I went ahead and I, you know, mm. used the exact same string that it used to be. And I put a little comment on saying, please don't change this. People are <laughs> relying on this being the same. <laughs> that could be a vet check that we have that looks for that string and see if you're doing that check and say, oh, did you know? Thanks to Carl. He's, he's fixed this. You can do it in this better way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was just like the last person in a chain of like, if you go on GitHub and you look at the issue for this, you can see so many people, you know, there with the exact same idea saying like, Hey, this should really be a type. It's kind of a pain that I have to like check for the string. It's brittle. It's going to break. And so actually what turned me on to the issue was I read uh, the book, Let's Go Further by Alex Edwards, which is a great book for just learning how to make a Go HTTP server um, and, you know, I was just sort of reading through that and looking at the different things. And at one point he says like, oh, yeah, here you have to do the string check because there's no type for it. Uh, if you think this should change, go to this issue. And he had the URL right there in the book. Uh, and so, you know, I was reading the ebook version. So I clicked through and went to the bottom and I was like, yeah, let's change this. Uh, and so um, I want to give thanks to Alex Edwards for turning me on to uh, fix this idea. Nice. Now you've made his book out of date. Oh, yeah, that's true. He has to update a new edition. <laughs> Make it more work for him. That's not part of the backwards compatibility promise, to be fair, is it? <laughs> well, the old code will still work. It'll still work, what's in the book. It's just now there's an easier way to do it. Yeah. Can you do a pull request to his book? Actually, how hard was it to, like, was there any discussion around the design of that? Was this something where you had to kind of advocate for one way to do it were there competing ideas or was it just sort of like the community had come to the conclusion that there's the sort of the right way to solve this 
There was a little bit of discussion. I mean, it's such like a simple thing that I feel like silly for talking about it on a podcast, but it's true that there was discussion. So one of the issues is in Go, there's two different ways that you can make a new type. You could just say type max bytes error int 64. So one thing you could do is you could just say type max bytes error struct bracket bracket. And that would mean Mm. this has no data whatsoever. It's just a pure type and you could check for it and that's all. So that's one way that you could do it. Or, But if you did it that way, uh, there wouldn't be a way of knowing what the limit was that you went over. And so I said, well, we should really have some way that people can find out what the limit was in case they have different handlers. And like my upload handler lets you upload up to 100 megabytes, but my JSON handler doesn't want you to upload more than two megabytes. And so I want to give the right error message to the right person. Uh, so I, you know, we had to advocate for that. So then there's two ways of doing that. You can say type... Uh, max bytes error int 64, or you could say type max bytes error struct int 64. And if you do it in the struct version, then that lets you add more fields later. Right. But if you do it in just the plain version, then you're really committing and you're saying, I guarantee that I'm at least, you know, going back to that go one compatibility promise, I don't think I'm ever going to have to add a second field. And so I don't think they're ever going to add a second field. I can't really imagine what the second field would be, but there was like consultation and they, you know, it was decided, let's go ahead and do it the forward compatible way just in case there ever is a second field that needs to be added. Yeah, that's, I think that's such a good lesson, I think. And that's something that I advocate for that a lot of like, think about, give yourself more options in the future. Yes, it would be very satisfying if that type was just, Uh, a number just an in 64 but give yourself more options in the future another example is when in data if there's a boolean field that's representing some kind of status like active or not active i'll probably go for a string that says active or not or inactive or something because what if i have other statuses in the future i don't then have to go and change those types so i quite like that way of thinking about the future, designing for the future, and give yourself more options later. Of course, these types have to have the error method on them, which is what satisfies the error interface. Mm-hmm. But you could have them on both of those, of course. Yeah, it's just a little bit of future-proofing. Yeah, it's interesting to see when people come together and they're debating these different APIs, uh, you know, things just improve. It's definitely improved me as a programmer to sort of be in the issues and like, you know, I'll have my first suggestion and somebody else will come up with a better idea. And then that'll be the thing that we end up implementing. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, guess what, Carl? Is it unpopular opinions? It, it is. It's <laughs> unpopular opinions. Could have done with the max bytes error earlier because i had too much dinner that's my unpopular joke uh carl do you have an unpopular opinion for us today uh yeah so the last time i was on the show uh, as you know if your opinion is popular you are forced to come back on until you get an unpopular <laughs> opinion uh so last time i was here i had the unfortunately popular opinion that the government should uh pay people to do open source software. So this time I think I'm really going to be unpopular. Uh, And my opinion is that Twitter is literally a hive mind. (laughs) 
What do you mean? So I don't know. Maybe Twitter will like this. I think that Twitter, <laughs> maybe Twitter people will like this. So I've been reading uh, this science fiction book uh, by the the author Adam Roberts called The This, and it takes place in the near future. There's a new social media network. It's similar to Twitter, except for uh, you have like a little implant that you put into the roof of your mouth that connects to your brain, and it lets you post you know, wirelessly, you know, without using your hands or your eyes or anything. So it turns out that if you just make the speed of posting on Twitter a little bit faster, it creates a uh, global hive mind that takes over the universe. So reading this science fiction novel really just made me like sit back and say, wait a minute, what is it about Twitter that I like? What is it that when I'm on Twitter, what am I doing? Why, why do I enjoy this? It's not like... It's not like something where you go on Twitter and you're like, oh, I was laughing out loud all night because I was reading these great jokes. Or you're not like, I was crying because I was reading about the sad things happening in the world. Or it's like, I was so fired up and angry that I went out there and I, you know, did a protest or something. It's like, you're just sort of, you're feeling all these emotions, but it's like really, you're just blipping in and out of the different feelings. And so, but it, it is, it is addictive. So like, what is it that's addictive about it? And so what I've decided is that the reason it's addictive is because you're participating in a hive mind. Uh, and that's just like, you know, it's nice to be a brain cell in a larger brain, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I've, I've sort of decided to try to be more individual, at least for now. Hmm. No, oh, good for you. Um, I was just going to agree that it is like a hive mind, but then I realized I'm really not, not helping. No, no, I got to come back again if this is popular. <laughs> Will I never escape? Yeah, interesting. I mean, with the algorithms, of course, like it, it's many, it's probably many hive minds, I suppose. And this is where I think it, it really does get dangerous, where, you know, as we, we know this phenomenon where we just, these echo chambers get created, you really end up following people that just agree and support your perspective and then you stop listening to other views or you see the other views through this distorted lens where, you know, it seems evil or bad or whatever. And in real, in the real world, if you meet somebody that has like a view that you would think is an absurd view, if you meet them in the real life, you don't, that, that, that same effect doesn't happen. Yeah. So I think, I do think that is something that we have to be really careful with that. Yeah. Even for programming languages, there's something about being on the internet that pushes you to extreme. And it's not just that like, I enjoy programming in Go, but like Go is the best and people who program in other languages are losers and how dare they. And <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, throw dog poop at their house until they change. I don't know, it gets, it gets out of control really quickly yeah. on the internet and it's hard to explain why it is. And so I think the theory that mm. it's because you're in a hive mind is as good as any other theory. Mm. Oh yeah, I'm into it. Interesting stuff. Well, let us know on Twitter if you agree or not with Carl. We'll be <laughs> actually. To be fair, we do poll these, and sometimes they're split. But right. what I have noticed is when, like, you've made a case for that. What, what happens is the way that it gets goes out on Twitter is they'll play a clip of you making that case, and then they ask people to vote for it. And very often people will agree because you know you make the case very articulately and basically when you hear someone say something that's what you then believe now <laughs> i believe that now <laughs> so we do we should check ourselves like it, it, we're all vulnerable to it and then we think we're not you know that's even more dangerous we are all vulnerable to this effect so thanks for the warning carl yeah we're all get sucked into that hive mind johnny i hope yours isn't quite so dystopian <laughs> 
Um, I don't know. It could be depending. I mean, if I make mm. the case that it is dystopian, maybe you'll start thinking it is dystopian. I already do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I haven't even heard it. <laughs> so over the years, I've found this one thing, this one thing to be true, like across <laughs> all of the projects I've ever worked on. You, you want to you wanna guess what it is? Oh. Don't cheat and read the show notes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, comp- you have to put the, you have to use the keyboard to, no, you don't even have to use a keyboard to put the code in. Um, well, no. y- you cover the key you want, which is counterintuitive on a keyboard. You're hiding the one that you actually are going to end up with on the telly. And that's, is it that? <laughs> close, close. But uh, no, I was thinking more of a, I've never, I've always ended up regretting using a Boolean to keep track of data when I could use a timestamp. A, t- a timestamp? Yeah, exactly. Well, not, not like a string. Yes. Rather than storing, like, you know, like, for example, is that like is active, right? Or active yeah. or whatever it is, like storing that and, you know, storing a, you know, true or false or one and zero, whatever it is in, in, in database. You just, you just store the 5th of January, 1971. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I stored a timestamp. I store activated at or active at or whatever, something, because uh, that gives me more information uh, because I know no. if there's a real date in there. Right, I don't have to keep track of two pieces of information. I don't have to keep track of oh, it is active, and now let me go find out later on where do I store when it was like last activated or even deactivated. Right, I can just use one date, one piece of data that communicates both pieces of information to me. Oh, I see. So yeah, that's really interesting. Don't use a boolean when a timestamp will do. You you can't add this after the fact. That's the interesting part about this is that you can't like mm. if you change your mind and you're like I've never used this date stamp. I'm always just treating it as a Boolean. I, I'm just going to convert it all to Booleans to save some, I don't even think you would save any bytes in the database actually, but just to make the code simpler, you can convert from date stamp to Boolean, but you can't do it the other way around, right? So if you're like, oh, I really wish that we had used a date stamp here so that we knew mm-hmm. what day people deactivated their account or what day they you know, did this or did that too late. <laughs> it can't be fixed after the fact. Mm. Right. That's, that's, that's why at this point, usually whenever I see, you know, like a bullying use in, in a PR or, you know, in the early phases of a system design, um, you know, like I think basically any sort of ERD or data model that I'm seeing where I'm seeing bullions, I'm like, could this be a timestamp instead? Mm. And more often than not, it's true. Don't use a bullion when a timestamp will do. That made a lot more sense after you explained it. I genuinely thought you meant you just have like your birthday means true <laughs> and <laughs> any other day is false, baby. <laughs> if it ain't my birthday, it ain't true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, that does make sense. But hang on, don't you then have to deal with like what's the empty state? And is it you know is that null or is that an empty string? Or? Well, if you're using so if you're rolling your own, like to use the cases of, of storing data in, in a database and whatnot. If you, if you're rolling your own sort of um, ORM or whatever it is, or you want to use an ORM, maybe if you wanted to, you could store the sort of the zero value right of, of your data, or just store you know nil. And then you know the standard library does give you the ability to parse uh, a time value and. Determine whether that time value is zero or not. There's literally a, a zero um, function in a standard library for time. You could use that, but you know, in most cases, ORMs. Um, I know for a fact GORM, um, which actually has become uh, when I have to use an ORM, has become one of my go-to's. You know, it will omit right, uh, um, sort of storing you know the zero value date for you, right? Um, so you know, any ORM 
that you want to use typically should give you sort of, uh, as we call it, quality of life sort of uh, uh, bits and, and, and pieces. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's totally doable, totally manageable. Um, and I think you get a whole lot more for that, right? for the extra, you know, bytes that you store, you know, even if you, you know, I'm not even sure, like call saying, I'm not sure you've saved that much space over the different data types, but um, depending on database implementation. But uh, yeah, it's you get so much more back when you use that timestamp than you do with a, with a bit. Yeah, now I'm thinking that going back to the time.duration.abs.absolute, that if you were just subtracting the time, like if you were like, I'm looking at the is deleted at column, and I want to know if it was deleted in the last month, and then I'm going to send them an email saying, please come back or something like that. If you just naively do that subtraction and the time is zero, you'll get the overflow and you'll need to use time.duration.abs. So please, people, <laughs> if you're implementing Johnny's uh, thing, use time.duration.abs and send me a royalty of, uh, you know, something fair, you know, nothing, not a lot, just like a hundred dollars, like just, you know, a little, do you remember in Back to the Future 2, there's like a part where um, Marty McFly is walking through the square and it's the future, it's the year 2015. And the woman says like, Hey, can you spare some money for the clock tower? And he's like, no, sorry, I can't. And she's like, come on, man, it's just a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I think that with the inflation now, it, it's really it's it was really set in 2022. They just sort of made a little error in the timing of the thing. Oh man, can't even buy a lollipop for 100 bucks anymore. Can you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also like how in Back to the Future when uh, they when he goes back and like someone dies in the past. Then he looks at the the Polaroid he's taken and it's kind of like half fading away. <laughs> and it's like, so at some point there was a semi-transparent tombstone was there. And so, and, but to be fair, you would take a photo of that if that happened. Like, yeah, the, 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 it takes time to cascade through the effects, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but. I don't know. I love that. They're probably my favorite film. Don't look at Back to the Future to reason about time. That's a. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> primer, primer you want for that. I don't know if you've seen Primer. There's also a great a Spanish one called Time Crimes, mm. which is another one of my favorites. I really recommend that. Mm. Time okay. Um, and actually, The Adam Project is a more recent one, which is kind of like more family-friendly movie, but time travel. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I like any film with time travel in it. And it can be a really bad film, and I'll love it. But for some reason, if it's got time travel in it, I'm in. So have you seen Tenet? You should see Tenet. Yes. Because that's a, that's a mind trip right there. Yeah, that's a good you one. You might have to watch it a few times. Yeah. Can I give my complaint? This is like the nerdiest possible complaint that somebody can have, which is that, okay, so Star Trek. Are you sure it's more nerdy than storing a timestamp instead oh, of a bullet? Th this is like, this is so bad. So it's Star Trek, right? <laughs> okay. They've done a million time travel episodes. And in the Star Trek yeah. time travel episodes, the rules are always that like, at the end, you have to sort of get things back to where it was or close enough. There can be like little changes, yeah. but nothing big. But then they had the Star Trek quote unquote reboot movie, which was not a reboot movie. It was a time travel movie. And in that movie and only that movie, they traveled back in time and made a second timeline. Mm. And it's fine. Like you can have time travel rules be that when you go back in time, it creates a new timeline and then there's two things. And so it's okay to kill your grandfather because that's just a different timeline. That is fine if you want that to be the rules, but that's not the rules of Star Trek. Yeah. 
If they wanted to reboot and say, okay, it's a new thing. It looks like Star Trek, but it's a total, it's a parallel universe where there's like different things. That would have been fine too. Like, I think everybody would have been happy. There's like a million Batmans. Nobody thinks that like the Batman in Batman 1989 has to like have some relationship to the Batman and the animated series. They can just be two different universes. It's fine. Yeah. But then for Star Trek, for some reason, they're like, let's make it a time travel movie and let's make it not use the rules of Star Trek time travel. Yeah. It just makes me crazy. Yeah. It's my nerdiest complaint about movies, I guess. Nice. But then all the other movies in Star Trek, like it's not like they don't do time travel in Star Trek. They do it all the time and they have very consistent rules except for that one movie. Yeah, that is quite nerdy. I'll give you that. But I'm with you, actually. If there's contradictions in films, then I'm also, I'm just out. And that does apply mm. to time travel films. But there's things like in those, anytime there's like a horror film, and my partner loves horror films. She's always like, she loves watching that. She loves that whole genre. But if there's like someone's grabbed by a ghost and they're being pulled through the house or something. So at that point, whatever else is going on, at that point, you can physically interact with this thing, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So you should be able to attack it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, it should, you can't have one without the other. And the other thing is, if you were invisible, which happens in films, you'd also be blind. And this is never the case. Like, <laughs> light has to hit your retina and be absorbed in order for you to, to see. And so if that's not happening, if the light's traveling through, then you are blind, basically. So you could be invisible, but you'd also be blind. Maybe you just have, you're invisible except for your pupils and people just don't notice that the pupils Great. are floating. They yeah. just think they're like two little gnats or something. Well, if that's the case, if there's just two retinas fl floating around, yeah. um, then fine. At least it's consistent. Yeah, that's like a good movie. That's what we all want to see. Is <laughs> that's a, a really good movie where there's two little yeah. retinas floating around. Yeah. It's called Retina. Yeah. Retina. <laughs> Christopher Nolan could make that. He'd do a really good job. The other thing about Star Trek I like, and my friend Aaron Adele made this point as well, um, it's when they like go onto another ship and they see all this like this alien technology they've never seen before. And they're like, hmm, this looks like navigation. This one looks like the, the energy. And it's like, I can't even use Android. Like, I, I've got an iPhone. <laughs> I don't even know how, if I pick up someone's phone, I'm like, yeah, you do it. It's like, what, you, what do you mean? It's like, Mis Mr. Data, can this you... Is, this is like one of the problems of the 21st century, yeah. That uh, yeah. it used to be when you went to somebody's house and they had a television you knew how to turn on their television and turn it to, you know, whatever channel you wanted to watch. Now, yeah. when somebody comes over to your house, like somebody's got to take care of your house because you're going out of town, you have to leave like a five-page memo. It's like, this is the remote that turns on the TV. This is the one for the Roku. This is the one for the stereo. This is the other one for the stereo for if the first one doesn't, isn't working, you have to push this one yeah. to like switch the yeah. channel. It's, it's a mess. Somebody needs to make remotes that... I just want voice control. Oh, yeah. Can I have voice control for all the things? Can I just, can I just get a uh, dual way with remotes? Just a voice control. Yeah, but then do you, do you say, which? what's the trigger word? I don't want to say the trigger words in case people listen to this on those devices. And then we, we can hack. Peanut butter. Okay, so you get to choose your own. Yeah, why not? Why yeah. would you choose that? What if you want <laughs> peanut butter though, Johnny? <laughs> you have to whisper. Can I have yeah. peanut butter? You should make it something you don't ever want. So like licorice, yeah. it's like, well, I would never ask for licorice. So there you go. I hate licorice. That's an unpopular opinion. If I've ever heard one. I hate licorice. Bling. 
Oh, no, I was just telling someone. I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. No, I wasn't talking to you. Oh, I'm not, you know. Oh. Would you like some peanut butter? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, well, that's, I'm afraid, all the time we've got today. Uh, but this whole, Is it? whole new, well, <laughs> yes, because we respect the timeline in, uh, on go time. <laughs> We're going to travel back in time and fix all of the uh, connectivity errors. Fix. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, though, if everything works and all the files are collected, in the final version of this that goes out, this will be seamless. And the editors, they're so good. So that could, could well happen. Mm-hmm. That's all the time we've got, I'm afraid, today. Thank you so much, Johnny Borsico. Always a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought you were going to say, I was leaving space for you to say <laughs> something nice about me, but no, well, that's fine. <laughs> and thank you so much, Carl Johnson, for joining us. We'll, we'll, I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll come back, I, I hope, uh, another time. Uh, more popular opinions, i got to stop doing that. Johnny, good to be we'll on see. an episode with you. Uh, so this, we're both in, the, in Baltimore, uh, and I'd love to start uh-huh. coming back to the Baltimore uh, Golang meetings as soon as my children let me leave the house. So, <laughs> someday. Sounds good. That's lovely, yeah. Do you want to say something nice about me, or we're just going to go two for two Matt, on the old... Matt, yep. you've, done, you've done an exceedingly adequate job of hosting... <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Oh. Thanks for having me on. No, it's, a, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time, dear listener, on Go Time. Bye! All right, that is go time for this week. Subscribe now if you haven't already. Head to gotime.fm for all the ways. Or just search for GoTime in your favorite podcast app. We're in there. If you like the show, please do tell a friend. That would be pretty cool. And if you're a diehard GoTime listener, check out our membership program so you can directly support the show, save some time by ditching the ads, get a little closer to the metal with bonuses and extended episodes and other goodies. Learn more about it at changelog.com slash plus plus. Thanks again to our friends at Fastly. Bandwidth for all of our shows is provided by Fastly. To the mysterious BMC for making sure our music is always banging. And to you for listening. We appreciate you. We are playing our award-worthy game show at GopherCon Europe. Yep, it's time to find out what the Gophers say. If all goes well, we'll have that episode ready for you next week.